Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Social Media and Politics Podcast, bringing you expert insights into how social media is changing the political game. I'm your host, Michael Bassetta, Assistant Professor of Communication and Media at Lund University. Remember, you can follow the show on Twitter at SMNP Podcast or visit us on the web at socialmediaandpolitics.org. All right, y'all. Thanks so much for tuning in. Here we are, one week away from the 2022 U.S. midterms. I'm very excited to see how things shake out. And I can promise for this episode, no tricks, only treats with my guest, Zach McCrary. He is a partner, pollster, and strategist at Impact Research, formerly known as ALG Polling, which is a public opinion research firm that aids Democratic candidates and causes up and down the ballot. They worked previously with candidates like Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and candidates all over the US at different levels of government. So Impact Research is really a top-level firm offering a full suite of services to political campaigns such as brand management, message development, strategy and targeting, and general strategic consulting, which is what we're going to talk about with Zach. And what we're going to talk about in this episode is not particularly a focus on social media because that's not Zach's particular wheelhouse. But as he'll say, he sits at the table with people who are working in digital consulting. And it's interesting to actually hear from his perspective kind of what is the impact of digital and how has he noticed that in his polling work? What is his polling work? Actually, what is the modern day pollster? We'll talk about that. And in particular, what I thought was really interesting, and we'll pick up on towards the middle of the interview, is how the importance of television really hasn't been overtaken by social media. That's something that's important to keep in mind. And we'll talk about why that is for political campaigns. We'll also look how changes in hardware, particularly the emergence of the cell phone and later the smart smartphone has affected polling practices. We'll also talk about focus groups, which Zach is also well-versed in, has conducted a number of them. What is a political focus group? How are those insights different from what you would get from more of a quantitative polling measure? And what I really found interesting about this episode was our discussion of media markets, which if you don't know what those are and their importance for political advertising, you can dial back to episode 95 with Professor Travis Redoubt, where we talked about his work comparing political television ads with Facebook ads and why those media markets are so important. And so I think it's interesting that Zach brings them up as well and provides some nice examples for how they are still important, both for campaign advertising, but also in terms of where wealthy contributors may decide to give money to political campaigns. And I think that's just such a nice example of the relationship between structure and agency in a political context, something we talked about last episode in terms of campaign structures, right? Structures matter, whether they are the structure of a campaign or maybe the structure of the media market in relation to the congressional district. That's an example that I use to teach structure and agency to undergrads all the way up to PhDs. And I'll just quickly segue into welcoming any students from my media and political engagement class, which kicks off this week. Pay special attention to that relationship between the media markets 
and political messaging because it's something we're going to go over quite a bit in class. The last bit of housekeeping I'll do is to promote Zach's podcast, which is called Pro Politics with Zach McCrary, where he interviews political operatives about their backstories, how they got into working for political campaigns, as well as their war stories from the front, which I think is absolutely fantastic, especially some of the older episodes going back to campaigns in the 70s and 80s. One episode I can particularly recommend if you want to start off is with Lance Terrence, and there you'll learn why Hillary Rodham Clinton is Hillary Rodham Clinton and not just Hillary Rodham. That was quite an interesting tidbit of American history political information. But there'll be a link down to that podcast in the episode description. Definitely check it out. But without further ado, let me turn it over to Zach McCrary. Again, he is a partner at Impact Research. Zach, thanks for taking the time out. and Welcome to the Social Media and Politics podcast. Yeah, Michael, it's great to connect with you. Thank you. So to start out here, I know that your work on campaigns is often condensed to the job title of pollster, but you view your role as more of a strategic partner to campaigns. So could you break down that distinction for us? How do pollsters both deliver data, but also partner with campaigns at a more strategic level? Yeah, that's a really important point. And if all one does, even if somebody is a pretty savvy political observer, if what you see on television or movies or on the West Wing, it's pollsters who come in and say, who's up, who's down, and then they leave the room, or here's what people think about this issue, uh, you know, plus 10 this way, plus 10 that way. That's usually the visual that you get from uh, pollsters in a lot of ways and in a way that it's consumed in the media. But as it relates to campaigns, whether it's political campaigns, issue campaigns, and it's not mostly what I do, but I also work with you know corporations and nonprofits uh, as well. And pollsters are really a strategic partner to the overall effort. Uh, you know, polling the idea of who's up a little, who's down a little—that's important. But really, what most polling is doing is trying to help change voter opinion, move people in one direction or another. And the nuts and bolts of that often are much more about message development. In terms of a a survey, we might have a 15, 18, 20-minute survey, and maybe 30 seconds is asking, are you going to vote for Biden or Trump? The rest of the survey, the rest of the real estate is attempting to determine, well, what issues are most important to you? What do you like about Biden? What do you like about Trump? Of the vast uh, messages available to talk about, you know, from the Democratic perspective, what's good about Biden or what's bad about Trump, you know, Biden is, a, is an example, been in office for decades and decades, uh, had hundreds, thousands of votes, policy positions on everything under the sun, had a compelling personal story, had had a foreign policy uh, expertise, was vice president. So you could, even if you had a um, three-hour survey or three-hour movie to express all the things that Biden has done, you wouldn't have enough time. And in reality, most campaigns are distilled into 30-second TV ads, increasingly 15-second or 6-second digital ads, uh, mail pieces that the idea with mail pieces is that you're only consuming the information on a mail piece. Nobody expects a voter to read every word on a mail piece, but you have from the time they get the mail piece out of their mailbox to they go to the trash can. So you have a glance or two or three at a mail piece. And so what polling is doing is trying to distill what is most important about a race, about a candidate, about an issue into very simple components, understanding that the average voter is not dumb, is not oblivious to these issues, but has so much going on in their lives 
uh, that they're not going to go to a campaign website and absorb everything. They're not going to watch a 30-minute infomercial on these things. You have just very small ability to distill what is most important about a campaign, and that's really what a pollster, most of what a pollster is trying to do in a political campaign. Uh, if there's one or two or three things that a voter knows about our candidate, knows about uh, the other candidate, what do we want those one or two things to be? Because there's very limited bandwidth to get messages across. So a pollster is one part of that. We like to see ourselves as the message watchdog. Pollsters are one seat at the table. We don't come down from the mountain with stone tablets and say, here's what the TV ad has to be. Here's the only words that can come out of the candidate's mouth, but you you have this wealth of data, uh, this data-driven information to help make some of these decisions, and a pollster has one seat at the table, often with a media consultant, and conventionally that was TV, but more and more that's TV plus digital plus direct mail plus some of the field consultants who were working to turn voters out plus campaign managers. Oftentimes, candidates themselves are very involved in this. So a pollster has one seat at the table, an important seat, but only one out of you know three, four, five seats at the table. And ultimately, we see ourselves as strategic partners to make sure that we're using the data we get to help everybody else on a campaign, to make sure that the campaign and the candidate's uh, resources, meaning their money that they work hard to raise, their time, uh, that they work hard to raise is informed by data. And ultimately, whether it is a TV ad or a mail piece or website content or a script when somebody's knocking on a door or calling people, whether it's a you know 10-minute stump speech, all of that in some way is usually informed by polling. And so that's how we see ourselves as a strategic partner. It's not just you're in the field and you poll and you say, who's up, who's down, you know, dump a poll on the desk and say, well, call me again in a couple of months when you're ready to poll again. But pollsters in the campaign sense are very much integrated in the day-to-day, sometimes hour-by-hour ebb and flow of campaigns that's often informed by polling, but also to sometimes you don't have the luxury of everything in a campaign being informed by polling. So, so pollsters are part of the group that are operating in real time and fully integrated as a strategic member of a campaign team. Yeah, it's interesting. I have a whole battery of questions for you or sure. and sort of me polling you for information. But um, you know, one of the things I'm curious about is where does that kind of knowledge or expertise come from? Because if you look at, for example, an academic type of survey, there'll be handbooks on best practices on what to ask, you know, how to get the variables you need. Whereas I get the sense from you, it's much more about building experience, maybe mm-hmm. drawing from the context to really understand. So where do you get these type of insights from? Is it just accumulated experience or is it something about having a kind of spidey sense for what might resonate with voters in certain contexts? Or kind of how do you sort of form that knowledge base or strategy to impart that on campaigns? Yeah, the the best pollsters are a good mix and have both of the sides of the coin of the science of polling, which is intense, which is about uh, writing a questionnaire, making sure the questionnaire itself is not introducing unnecessary bias or bias that's compromising the ultimate goals. Uh, so there's a whole, you know, you could have a whole college course load about survey writing and informing how you're writing questions and, and getting the right data. And increasingly, it's become even more complex 
the methodology and the sampling. How do you how do you devise a sample uh, where you are trying to get a representative sample of the electorate? If that's what we're talking about here, we're talking about a political campaign. How do you figure out you know who are the voters you want to talk to in the abstract? That's one piece. And then how do you weaponize that? How do you how do you mechanically try to get uh, those voters or the most representative sample uh, that you can? And that's the verbiage of the questionnaire, I think, is is not changed that much. But in my you know, 18 years in polling, it has dramatically become more uh, complicated to uh, to get the right sample, to devise the, the appropriate sample, and then to ensure that your ultimate final product looks like that representative uh, sample. And there's you know, sort of whole conversations about response bias and and response rates, which are you know getting lower and lower. Uh, each year, all sorts of challenges that I don't know that people, you know, I don't know that we realized at the time or the industry realized it at the time, but just how straightforward it was, you know, until we got until the cell phone era, you know, late 2000s, the 2010s, when more people started having cell phones rather than uh, than landlines. And once that happened, you know, then then there was explosion of smartphones and everything has gotten very complicated since then. And the line that I've used for a while is that it's never been easier and cheaper to poll the wrong way. Uh, and it's never been more complicated, more difficult, and more expensive to poll the right way. And so there is that science part of it where you know having a grounding in statistics and methodology and sampling and all of that is an important piece of the polling. But at least in the certainly in the political world, there's also a real import of the art of politics, the art of polling. It's not just what do the numbers say, but how do you extract meaning from them? What is the story that the uh, numbers are telling you? How do you um, weaponize that for a campaign? You know, how do the numbers on a page fit into TV ads and mail plans and get out the vote plans and, and, and stump speeches and the ebbs and flow of campaigns? How do you deal with those day in and day out, you don't have the luxury of just being able to be in the sterile laboratory of an academic setting or operate under hypotheticals. Uh, there are lots of surprises and crises, big and small, in campaigns. And having the the art of campaigns, the art of polling, is important. So, sort of the uh, the street smarts and the book smarts. I think the most effective pollsters are the ones who marry both of those two. The most effective polling firms. Are those who have you know plenty of people who are the you know the MIT math whizzes and you need that uh, as part of your polling firm, especially these days as everything has gotten more complex and complicated and elaborate. But you also need people who come out of the campaign world who have been in the shoes of campaign managers who have had to make uh, decisions while under fire and under duress and in the midst of crisis. So it really is very much both an art and science, the book smarts and the street smarts. Uh, you know, if you could have a Frankenstein's monster for a pollster, you would want really both of those elements present to be the most effective in the real world operating for campaigns. Very appropriate reference with uh, with Halloween coming up. <laughs> you uh, you mentioned it a bit, sort of the um, the transformation of the the smartphone and kind of what that did for polling. And so I know that you know your work isn't necessarily explicitly about digital communication or, or social media, but you've been working on campaigns for the better part of two decades. So from your perspective as a pollster, 
I mean, have you seen or in what ways has social media kind of changed campaign structures, messaging, data, or has it really been kind of overblown as to how transformative these technologies have been in terms of message strategy and voter contact? Is it basically just an extension of old practices or is it something entirely new altogether? I think it's more on the new side, frankly. When I first got started, my first cycle working really in depth in politics was oh, the 06 cycle, eight and 10 really working, you know, getting my uh, bearings as both a pollster and a strategist. And still at that point, if you were a campaign and you had reasonable resources, if you wanted voters to know something, if you wanted the electorate to know something, you could buy a TV ad, you know, put it on broadcast TV, maybe layer in a little bit of cable television and 85, 90% plus of the electorate would absorb that information if you put enough resources behind it. I don't know what that number is now, what the scale, what the scope, what the coverage would be for a similar spot. But if you, there really is nothing today in my experience that you can replicate, even, even adding all these things together. I don't think it's possible to communicate in a, in a meaningful way with 90% plus of the electorate. Now, presidential races, which we may talk about, are a little different animal because they take on sort of an ecosystem of their own. But if you're running for Congress or Senate or governor or a state legislature or mayor, there's just no ability to communicate with 85, 90 percent of the electorate in a broad swath like you could do in the not too distant past. So I think that's the biggest uh, change is that, you know, it used to be if I was running for Congress and put up a TV ad in my district, you know, nine out of 10 voters I could communicate with and would have some degree of confidence. Maybe they like my message. Maybe they like me. Maybe they don't. But I'm at least getting the message that I want to them. You know, I don't know if that number was 90 percent 15 years ago. I don't know what it is now, if it's 60 percent or 50 percent or 65 percent. But it's a dramatic, dramatic drop from what it was just a generation or half generation ago politically. And some people will tell you, and, and it's accurate to some degree, that television is still important, which that is the case. And television, broadcast television, is still the uh, the main course of most political media campaigns. But then all you have to do is just layer in digital and online buys and go find people. And then if you piece all this together, you can still get to that point where you've pretty much fully saturated the electorate. I don't have any any great uh, numbers to throw out or any rigorous studies, but just from seeing day to day in and day out, I do think there is a much lower share, a uh, much more compressed ability to be able to communicate with voters uh, than there was before everyone you know was online, before everyone had a phone in their pocket. So you know I don't know if that's 50, 60 percent versus 80, 90 percent, something like that is where my uh, gut is, and it depends on what part of the country you're talking about as well and what and what demographics are. Uh, so that's a big difference to be where all you really want to do as a campaign, at the end of the day, if you're able to get your message out to the voters, that's sort of all you can ask for at the end of the day. Your opponent's going to do their thing and they're going to have their message as well, but you think I've got a good candidate, we've got the right message, we have a poll-affirmed message, a data-driven message, and that's all you can ask for. In the old days, you could sort of accept that, and that's how campaigns were won or lost. Now it's much more difficult, even if you got a good campaign, even if you got a good message, it's much more difficult to get that message 
out there and to have it saturate and penetrate uh, the electorate. So that's just a, a whole host of challenges. And I don't think that um, that digital ads, an ad that pops up on Facebook or a 15-second ad before you watch your YouTube video, I don't think that that has taken the place or has been a good substitute in terms of the depth and the ability to get a message through to voters. And so we're just have less ability to communicate with voters than we did before. And it's one of the reasons, I think, why basic partisanship uh, is ruling the day more than it used to. It's not the only reason. But if you're not really hearing a ton from either candidate, if that message isn't getting through, then you're just defaulting to, okay, well, I usually vote Democrat. I usually vote Republican versus, again, 15, 20 years ago, maybe you usually voted Republican. But if you heard a message that you liked and that came through from a Democratic candidate, you might at least give that candidate some consideration. If you're not hearing anything from that candidate, you have really nothing else to do but just default to your partisan cues. So in terms of how campaigns are are run, how campaigns are won or lost, I think that's the biggest change is the you know day-by-day erosion of the effectiveness of broadcast TV. And even though people aren't watching less content uh, than they used to, maybe they're watching more content than ever, that the YouTube pre-roll ad uh, is not at all as effective in getting messages across as 15, 20 years ago the uh, the 32nd political TV ad was when everybody was watching, um, you know, Seinfeld on a Thursday night. You know, that's just a dramatically different change, which makes it harder to communicate and harder for these races to live and die by anything other than than the fundamental partisanship of their electorate. Yeah, that's a really useful observation about um, the sort of mass exposure through television. I think we, we tend to think about this in terms of something that was like a phenomenon of the 70s or 80s. But I think um, what you're saying is that that same general idea still held up until the um, the early 2000s, which is useful, I think, to, to keep in mind. But let's chat about these midterms, the upcoming midterms, um, what have you noticed? It could be social media, digital communication, or otherwise that is maybe different from previous election cycles. What are the key challenges this time around? I feel like we have to keep kind of taking the pulse of, of campaigns every two years to see what's happening. What have you noticed out there in the field that might be different this time? Yeah, each midterm you know, feels different in the moment, but then more often than not, it does seem like it defaults back to fundamentals. And this midterm has had more twists and turns. And for the first period or two of this midterm, it felt very dire for Democrats. And that's again, goes back to fundamentals. Midterms are usually about fundamentals. And we're at a point where Biden's approvals, and listen, I'm a Biden fan, our firm works for Biden, but Biden's approvals throughout most of the, uh, of the last year plus have been uh, negative. You know, they've actually bounced back to some degree over the last two, three months, but are still in the red. And so if you have an unpopular Democratic president, you have Democrats in control of both the House and the Senate. Congress has, you know, largely negative ratings. Uh, the right track, wrong track number is deeply in the red. There's a lot of economic pessimism out there that remains. So most of these fundamentals are pointing against the party in power. And that's, you know, Democrats, you're staring down the business end of these negative fundamentals if you're the Democrats. And throughout most of the first phase or two of the midterm cycle, 
it felt like that was what was happening, that Democrats were headed toward, you know, a bloodbath uh, in a lot of ways. The Democrats were, you know, almost a sure thing to lose the House. The Democratic margin in the Senate, very narrow to begin with, was uh, very questionable. And then you had the abortion decision, the Dobbs Supreme Court decision that, uh, that, that came in, and that reshuffled the deck at least temporarily. And what causes wave year elections, what causes political waves, and it's more likely to be in a midterm, uh, is two things are happening at the same time. One is that independent voters are dramatically in one direction or the other. You know, you, you would see a 15 or 20 point margin among independent voters uh, toward one party or another versus independents, you know, breaking uh, sort of 50-50, which might be the, um, the the natural status quo. But independent voters uh, break strongly for one party against another party. That's one component. And the other is that one party is just more enthusiastic and turns out at a higher rate than the other party. And you put those two together, the independence and the turnout, and that's where political waves happen. But what happened after the Dobbs decision is Democratic enthusiasm, which had been sluggish, which was not, um, you know, you saw that in the Virginia governor's race where uh, Republican enthusiasm outpaced Democratic enthusiasm and a state that Biden won easily in the presidential flipped a Republican in the governor's race. But in the wake of, in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision, there was this, I think, legitimate, and there still is to some degree, this legitimate spike in Democratic enthusiasm and some of the voters Democratic-oriented voters who were, you know, the least enthusiastic about uh, Biden at that moment in time, younger voters, specifically sort of softer Democratic voters, all of a sudden were engaged in the system, in the process, in a way that they had not been in the midterm up to that point. Uh, and so those were the two components that independents still, throughout most of the cycle, have had a Republican lean to them. But in the wake of Dobbs, there's some indication that Democrats were either as enthusiastic as Republicans or maybe even more so in some of these special elections. And so I think that is sort of the tug of war we're seeing. Does the Democratic enthusiasm wane or does the Republican enthusiasm ratchet up the closer we get to the election? And can Democrats do anything to mitigate some difficult numbers, the difficult fundamentals of the electorate? which are really present, especially with independent voters. So I think those are the cross currents here that make this election a little bit more difficult to anticipate exactly what's happened in a 2010 and a 2014, which turned out to be Republican waves. You, you could sort of see that coming. You saw that independents were breaking for Republicans and Republicans were more enthusiastic in a 2018, uh, going back to even further to 2006, 2008. It worked for Democratic wave years. You saw an independence breaking toward Democrats and Democratic enthusiasm, outpacing Republicans, that led to Democratic wave years. This, I think, is is a more, there's more question marks about what this year uh, has in store politically. But at the end of the day, it's hard to go, you're not going to go broke often betting on the fundamentals uh, to carry the day in midterms. And those, you know, are generally aligned more in the Republicans' direction. Yeah, what I take from that is it seems more about kind of big macro level political shifts and things like voter sentiment, enthusiasm, favorability, not necessarily that, you know, TikTok has reached critical mass, you know, and might be utilized for voters. And I just think that's important for especially the academics listening who tend to, you know, we're so 
focused on one niche, which is social media communication, that we sometimes try to explain things that way rather than these sort of larger structural issues. Yeah. I'd say just a couple of things on that as well, uh, is that still almost every campaign, and I think this is the best practices, even though uh, it may be a head scratcher for some folks, is that still in any almost every campaign that is out there, Republican, Democratic, underdog, or an incumbent, the first bucket that you fill on a campaign, the first line item that you fill on a campaign that you're most protective of is the television budget, is the more conventional broadcast, broadcast plus cable uh, bucket. Now, again, nobody is Pollyannish to think that that is as effective as it was a generation ago, but it's still, if you had to choose one way to communicate with voters in a political sense, in terms of likely voters, that is still the place that you are the most protective of. Now, increasingly uh, over the last you know, 10, 15 years, the share of the pie that is going just into the TV bucket you know, has come down, digital comes up, some of these other things come up. And I, I think maybe that is a misconception out there that television is broadcast television is dead, that you shouldn't be investing in that, that it has no to minimal role to play. When in virtually every campaign of every type, every political campaign, uh, that is the first thing that you feel and what you're most protective of. And often only once you feel like you have reached critical mass there uh, that you start to piece together some of these other elements, digital, mail, radio, uh, whatnot. Uh, the one thing that I do think is not a brand new tool, but I think the tool is getting better every year are these analytics and targeting tools that from the Democratic side, for example, are able to go in and identify which voters are the most pro-choice, for example. And so you can develop a universe of voters who you think are strongly pro-choice, but maybe also a lower vote propensity. So are the types of people that would be the most likely to sit out a midterm election, maybe they vote in presidential years, but historically not midterms, so you can marry those together of a strongly pro-choice voter with voters who are maybe need an extra touch or 10 to turn out. And that information at the individual voter level uh, has gotten more sophisticated over the last uh, decade and you know, by the hour in some cases gets more and more sophisticated. And there are tools, and I'm a little bit out of my wheelhouse here, but there are tools where you can, at the individual level, can go target them and give them specific uh, content. So if there's a, a pro-choice voter and a pro-life voter next door to each other, or maybe even in the same household, you can identify them and figure out how to target them and give them a pro-choice ad in the importance of this election of turning out to protect the right of women to choose their own healthcare uh, decisions. That they, they have to watch that ad before they can watch their YouTube video. If they have a pro-life roommate, uh, the roommate is not necessarily uh, hearing that information or their next door neighbor is not hearing that information. There's even, and I'm, I don't know enough to talk about it in an informed way, but even, even some of the television tools, uh, cable, uh, satellite television tools can, uh, can target household by household. And so you have this very sniper rifle approach that gets more sophisticated each cycle versus the more shotgun approach where everybody in the same media market, where in, if you're in Georgia, 70% of Georgia is in the Atlanta media market. So instead of 70% of the state seeing the same ad, and maybe that means that you're talking about an issue like abortion because you think that's 
key to your election, but you know that there's a lot of anti-abortion, a lot of pro-life people who are seeing that ad as well, uh, and that becomes wasteful. Uh, there are tools that are available now and are sharper by the day. You know, it's not just abortion, but really every issue under the sun, every type of segment, and the Republicans use this very sharply as well. You know, in, in ways that I would describe to sort of inflame some of the culture wars uh, as well. And if a voter is really aggrieved by um, you know, transgender people in sports or uh, critical race theory, they can go target those voters really on an individual basis. That is a tool, a specificity that is getting better each cycle that wasn't available at all a decade ago. And each cycle and even within cycle becomes more and more sophisticated. Uh, by the uh, by the hour. Right, which all sounds, you know, super glitzy and and you know, super complex and interesting, but I want to dial back to what you said about television being the part of the budget that campaigns protect first. And I'm I'm curious to hear why that is. And I'm glad you mentioned media markets because there's been some academic research that's compared television ads and Facebook ads and basically finds that when the media market doesn't really cover the congressional district, then candidates are more likely to spend on Facebook. So basically, it's it's a way to get around when the media market doesn't align with your congressional district. So, I mean, what is it about television that still holds this power? Is it is it just because that's what older voters are watching? Is it just because it's more persuasive or the state of mind that people are in when they're watching television versus, you know, scrolling on their phone? I mean, why is that still so important given all these advanced targeting technologies? Yeah, I mean, I do think some of it certainly goes to the fact of just the electorate skews disproportionately older than uh, than the electorate as a whole. Uh, but even if you look at, you know, at entities, you know, outside of politics that have younger skewing audiences, you know, you look at, you know, Apple or, uh, or you know, Google, any of the, uh, you know, fast food chains, any of the, the major corporations are still spending. You look where they are putting their dollars. And it's overwhelmingly on television. And so it's, this is not something that's unique to politics. I think it's maybe more pronounced than politics because if the median age of the average voter in a midterm is 50-something, I suspect the average target for you know Apple iPhone is probably in their teens or 20s. And so it's maybe more pronounced in politics. But even you look at the big corporations who uh, have no shortage of research and and ways to figure out who their targets are and how to get at them are still very much invested in broadcast television. Uh, and I think some of it, even as the ceiling has come down on, on who you can reach, on the share of the electorate you can reach, it's still the best tool in the toolkit. Even if it's 50 or 60 percent reach versus 80 or 90 percent reach, nothing else uh, has anywhere close uh, to that. And I do think there is something to be said that the way that people absorb television ads is more uh, passive and you're more likely to find people who are just sort of in one place and sitting and watching and observing. And I think some of this is correlated with age as well. You know, a generation of people who are, you know, middle age or older who are, you know, not used to being able to skip ads anytime they want, not used to being able to have ad-free experiences. Uh, so even if you are paying the premium, which it costs a premium to get a TV ad before a YouTube clip, where you have to literally watch the ad, you know, the, uh, the, the recipient, if it's younger, which is often, often the case, uh, is sophisticated and they hit mute or they go to a different screen or they have some workaround. Uh, and so I, I do think that those two things work together. 
Um, but yeah, if there's sort of one tool that you can have in the toolkit, we see this in our in our polling. After you've had you know a round or two of television ads, it's not that everybody uh, in the in your district knows who you are, but you can go from 10, 15% name ID to you know 40, 60, 80% name ID using uh, mostly a television you know, broadcast plus satellite plus cable television approach and certainly helps to have digital filling in some of the, the holes as well. But television still you know, has the biggest reach, is the tool with the most uh, efficacy uh, when you are trying to do that. And I think some of that is just a reach altogether. And digital is just so fragmented uh, as well. And I'm sure some of the people you've talked to are, are much better able to talk about that. But, you know, it's a you know punchline now just how fragmented the digital experience uh, is. Some streaming services have lots of ads. Some have no ads. Some have you can pay more and get ad free experiences. You know, some people probably have you know, VPNs or whatever the term would be so they can circumvent the ads, even if the, uh, the service uh, thinks that you're watching the ads. And all of that just makes it much more difficult for a message uh, to penetrate. So nobody in politics thinks television is as effective. Uh, as it was a decade ago, but it still is the best and the most um, the most effective way to communicate with the largest possible audience at one time. But I do think to the media market point, uh, that is an underappreciated view of politics, uh, especially at the congressional level or lower, even as it relates to some Senate races and governor's races, uh, where if you're running for Congress, and you are in uh, New Jersey. New Jersey famously doesn't, there, there's no New Jersey media market. If you're in New Jersey, you're either getting television from New York City or you're getting television from Philadelphia if you live in South Jersey. And so it just becomes virtually cost prohibitive unless you're just a billionaire pumping in your own dollars into the race. It becomes cost prohibitive if you're, if you're running for Congress in North Jersey uh, to run TV ads. Uh, because then you'd be paying to, for everybody in the New York City media market, the most expensive media market in the country, uh, to see your ads uh, when only a sliver of those people actually vote in your North Jersey congressional district. You'd be communicating in dozens of congressional districts beyond your individual uh, district. So at that point, you do see that you become more reliant on cable. You become more reliant on direct mail plans. In a conventional race, there might be a direct mail plan of eight or 10 or 12 pieces going to an individual voter would not be unusual. If you're in a district or a state where you're just priced out of the market on television, you might have 30, 40, 50 point piece direct mail plans because that becomes the main way in which people are hearing about you because you're priced out of broadcast. Cable often has low penetration or is expensive in and of itself. Digital has some but lower penetration. So if you want to talk to voters in your area, you have to you have to mail them. Uh, and so that can you literally have dozens of pieces of mail in those situations. So I think a lot of folks don't understand or, or haven't had to think about the difference in how candidates have to take into account media markets. There are some members of Congress. If you're running for Congress in Arkansas's second district, everybody in your district is in the Little Rock media market. If you're if you're running for Congress in the first Ohio district, everybody in your district is in the Cincinnati media market. That's a pretty cheap date as far as communicating goes. But if you're in a district in South Georgia, you might have some parts of your voters are in the expensive Atlanta media market and some parts are in the Tallahassee, Florida media market and some places are in, you know, Columbus, Georgia media market. So it can get much more expensive and much more 
complicated very uh, quickly. And that's a lot of the, uh, the, the campaign committees and donors uh, take that into account when they're figuring out which race is the best investment. If I want to give $1,000 to a campaign, a campaign that has a very affordable media market, that $1,000 is going to go a lot further than trying to give $1,000 to somebody who is running for Congress in the Los Angeles media market, where that's really just a drop in the bucket of how they can effectively communicate. Yeah, it's so important, these media market structures. And it's interesting to hear that they still play such a role. And I think it's just so crucial to keep in mind. So I'm, I'm very glad that uh, both that it's still relevant for campaigns, very relevant, and also that at least the academic research was on the right track with uh, comparing TV and social media. Let's transition over to to more kind of your wheelhouse, specifically in polling and focus groups. I'm curious to hear first, what would be a typical poll or a focus group, if there is one? I mean, kind of how do you conduct it in terms of what's the medium for a poll? What type of questions are you asking? And then how might that differ from a focus group setting? Yeah, absolutely. The conventional poll, uh, and this you know has changed over the last cycle or two. When I first started, 100% of our interviews were collected via landline uh, telephones. You know, as 2006 turns into 2008 and 10, you know, cell phones become more common had you know, 80% landline, 20% cell phone. And then within a few years, cell phones become the dominant mode of communication. And instead of people having a landline and a cell phone, a lot of people are cell phone only. And so, you know, for a while, some surveys were almost exclusively 100% uh, cell phone. And now the best methodology, the best practices, really the buzzword is multimodal, where you're getting people, you know, a few, a small percentage still via landline, which are you know, certainly tilt toward older voters. You have significant share that you're reaching via cell phone, and you have a significant share you're reaching via a text or online, whether it is texting a link to your phone, and then you're asked to click on the link and take an online survey. Text to web is what that would be called, or the more simplistic text surveys where you just get a text and it's you know press one for Biden, press two for Trump, press three for undecided, the more SMS text pieces as well as as online, capturing people, whether it's via email, whether it's um, you know via sort of a click in to take a survey. So every survey doesn't necessarily have every piece of that, but the buzzword certainly has become multimodal in politics, especially as it became apparent over the last few cycles that there were a certain type of voter that was just not in the surveys to the degree they should have. And it was often, to oversimplify it, it was often a more rural, small-town voter with lower educational attainment, lower social trust, less likely to take surveys, and you were, we were missing those types of voters. And I think, frankly, we probably were always missing those types of voters to some degree in polling, uh, but the, the rub was those types of voters became very Trump-friendly in the Trump era. In, um, in 2008, maybe that same voter broke 50-50 for Obama versus McCain, for example. Uh, and so if you were missing that voter, it wasn't wreaking havoc with the results because they largely were in line with the rest of the electorate. If we missed getting the right share of left-handed voters, you might not notice it if left-handed voters generally voted the same way as right-handed voters. Uh, so it's not a big deal in terms of the, the accuracy if you're missing left-handed voters. But so we, we, we realized, or it became clear, we were missing a certain type a very Trump-friendly voter, and so it became an imperative to use additional tools to get the most representative sample 
uh, that we can. And going back to the idea that it's never been more complex and more expensive, frankly, uh, to get uh, the right interviews, that is, you know, be- becomes more true uh, by the day. So you, you were handcuffed and challenged by just the mechanisms with which people communicate becoming more disparate. You know, it's not just everybody's, you know, has a landline phone anymore. You have all sorts of different ways to communicate. At the same time, you saw a certain type of voter become less predictable. And if you're missing that type of voter, it was wreaking havoc on the accuracy, at least as it relates to to political polling. Now, you know, corporate world maybe doesn't have this problem. If, if I'm, you know, doing marketing for Coke, I'm mostly concerned about soft drink customers or Coke customers, or it's not maybe a big deal to me if there's a sliver of small towns, low social trust, lower educational attainment voter. If I'm missing that person, I probably just assume my my marketing be fully representative, but it's not going to be a major issue for me if I'm not getting everybody in exactly the right share of their electorate in polling. Uh, if you're if you're missing a voter and that voter is attitudinally different than everybody else, that's where this polling error starts to creep in. So a lot of these challenges are unique to uh, to the political world, whereas the broader survey research world. I mean, there's you know there's the the survey research we hear about as news consumers is mostly about politics. There's much more survey research being done day in and day out by corporations and uh, nonprofits and things that are not at all political, then there is things that are uh, partisan political, but we just don't hear about them and they aren't handcuffed by some of the same uh, necessities to be 100% accurate and 100% representative. And they also, you know, if you're Coke, you, you're not in, in politics. If you if you think the election is going to be a little bit leaning Biden and it comes out to be a little bit leaning Trump, you have egg on your face and you have a lot of explaining to do, fair or unfairly, whereas, you know, you're never really tested like that in most of the corporate uh, world where you, you go about your business and you communicate with your, your target audience. And that is that. So multimodal has become the, the buzzword for polling, I think accurately so, to try to do everything we can to get the most representative sample. Focus groups are uh, in some ways similar to polling, and we would very rarely do only focus groups for a client. Focus groups are usually a complement to a survey. So if you only have, as many candidates do, uh, many clients do only have the budget for one or two tools, you certainly would prioritize a survey that is giving you a reliable look at the full uh, electorate and you know, giving hundreds, 600, 800,000 interview sample to inform strategic decisions. Where focus groups become valuable is as a complement to that to answer some pretty specific Questions. You know, uh, polling tells you what people think in a given uh, circumstance. Focus groups uh, tell you why they think what they think. And you can go in longer form from a political sense. Focus groups are often useful in seeing, well, how do people think about a candidate? You know, what is the first word or phrase that comes to mind? What do they know about a candidate? There's only so much of that you can get into in a 15 minute survey with 800 people. But if you want to find out, well, why do people like uh, Biden? How do they think about Biden? What grade would they give Biden thus far? How do they compare Biden to Trump? What don't they like about Biden? Uh, You want to talk about that in long form. That's where focus groups come in. Uh, If you want to show them some content, whether it's potential TV ads, whether it's just footage of Trump or Biden speaking, how do they react to that person? So much of polling is focused on getting the message right 
which is vitally important and one of the most important roles that polling plays is to get the message right. But there's also the part of getting the right messenger. No matter how sharp a message is, if you have the wrong messenger, it's going to be diluted. Uh, so if you're a candidate and you have the right message, is it ideal for for me, the candidate, to deliver that message directly to camera? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe people don't like the cut of my jib or don't like how I come across. Maybe they respond better if it's my spouse or you know a kid, uh, you know a child. Maybe it's better if it's somebody who knew me. Uh, maybe it's better if it's just an announcer voiceover that's being very sort of straightforward about it. So there's all these more qualitative judgments that polling just doesn't answer, does not is not equipped to answer that focus groups can really give you some real texture on, as well as just trying to understand how voters, how Americans think about some complicated issues. You know, in a survey, you can try to come up with the best definition of critical race theory if you want. Uh, And you can say, okay, here's what critical race theory is. You know, do you favor this or oppose it or et cetera, et cetera. But to really understand how people approach a complicated issue like that, you need more than just a minute or two in a survey. You need to say, well, what have you heard about critical race theory? What comes to mind when you hear that label? How would you define it? Here's one definition. Here's another definition. Here's what supporters say. Here's what opponents say. Here's what teachers have to say. Here's what parents have to say. And you can go through this in longer form in a way that you just don't have the ability to do in survey. So it's very rarely a substitute. Focus groups are very rarely a substitute for surveys, uh, rigorous quantitative surveys, but are often a very helpful complement to sharpen your messaging, sharpen some of the decisions in terms of uh, how you communicate and make sure that you're taking the guidance from a survey and having it as sharp as it can be. But I would say, you know, the average governor candidate, Senate candidate is having, um, you know, a few rounds of polling and a two or three rounds of focus groups. Honestly, the average member of Congress probably doesn't have the resources to engage in focus groups. Some do, but that would actually be the exception uh, rather than the rule. So there are a lot of candidates out there who are in office who don't have the luxury or haven't made the decision to engage in focus groups. So it's, it's not a given. And if you have one or have to, again, be protective of one piece, though, the polling is 990 times out of 1,000 is what you're going to be the most protective of and then utilizing focus groups as a supplement to help sharpen what you learn from the polling. Yeah, I I can totally see that. But I mean, how much do the methods feed into each other? I mean, I can understand kind of sharpening a message in terms of should it be the politician direct to camera or narration, but does the focus group insights somehow inform the polling downstream or are they kind of relatively separate? No, I think they are. And there's often this sort of internal discussion, not even a debate, but sort of a discussion. You can make a case to have focus groups first. You know, if you're running for office, it's, you want to hear how voters put some of these things in their own words. What is most important to them about what's going on in their state? What do they want to see done with the schools? What's the most important issue? How do they think about what is currently going on? In their world, and to some degree, you can almost, and we've done this in many times, just rip off language directly out of somebody's mouth in a focus group and replicate that in a survey. And oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes that has real traction. And all of a sudden, you have either a distinct message or a turn of phrase or a specific verbiage that you wouldn't have had, uh, you know, if it was just the campaign people brainstorming that you were actually able to get out of 
the focus groups. You, the, the most recent example of this I can think of is our client, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, who's uh, governor of Michigan, and, and my colleague John Anceloni's done this race, but I'm, I'm familiar with the, the nuts and bolts here, where Michigan notoriously has very bad roads, even above and beyond you know, what a lot of people think their roads or bridges need to get taken care of. You could see this in the focus groups, people complaining about the roads and potholes and connecting the dots. You know, these bad roads means I have thousands of dollars of car repairs each year. It means I have to buy new cars more often. Voters in Michigan in these groups, you know, to the degree that they knew why their roads were bad. We use this kind of mix versus that kind of mix because it was such an issue in their lives. They had to get pretty sophisticated about it. And somebody in the group said, you know, I, I could vote for any sorts of person for governor, but what I really want is somebody who's going to fix the damn roads. And we heard that come out of the groups and you see people nodding and it sort of pops the room and you think, okay, you, you remember that you jot it down and you put that, you know, in a survey or you let the candidate who was already talking about fixing the roads. That was already something that was important to her and an important part of the campaign. But the, what is that? The four word phrase of fix the damn roads is able to encapsulate something that breaks through and you would, we would see it and the, in the, we would put it in our TV ads. She would talk about it on the stump and you would come back after the fact and you would say, well, you know, in a survey, in an 800 person survey, and you know, you, we would do an open end, you know, which is a little bit of sort of a focus groupy type question in a survey. But uh, what have you read or heard recently about Gretchen Whitmer? And you, we would do these word clouds where I'm sure people know how word clouds work, the larger, the font is used, the more frequently it's mentioned in everything that would, you know, you, you would see a lot of things in small, you know, small font. The only thing, the main things in the big font, fix damn roads. And so that was cutting through because that was capturing something with it. And even a step beyond that, which shows how these things are often symbiotic, there was also this pushback that was gotten from the political class of, yeah, this is a good message, but um, you know, listen, a candidate for governor shouldn't be out there using the word damn, you know, maybe this was a gender thing. She's, you know, a woman. So, you know, this is unbecoming of a woman and this is going to turn people off. And, you know, we, so we put that in a survey, you know, of, you know, which is closer to your opinion, you know, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, when she's talking about fixing the damn road, she shouldn't use language like that versus, you know, that shows that's important to her and it doesn't bother me. Something like that. And you'd see 65, 70% in the survey say that didn't bother them that you know indicated you know passion and it was important to her and so th that's i think a good example of how these things can be symbiotic uh with each other and you don't want these things siloed where the you know depending on the sequence here you want the poll to inform the the focus groups the focus groups to inform uh the polling oftentimes polling is important in figuring out who the focus of the focus group should be that is a, a, a term of art focus group because often you're zeroing in on a specific type of voter. In political races, it's mostly based attitudinally. Who are the softer voters? Who are voters who are undecided or leaning in only in one direction or another? You know, oftentimes we will you know, have a men's group or a women's group, or you have sort of an, an emphasis is older or younger or you know, an Anglo group versus a Latino group. But more often than not, you are basing these on attitudinal uh, components. And just how a focus group comes together is it often, it feels a lot, in a lot of ways like a survey. You will actually conduct sort of a mini survey and, you know, you'll call people, you know, within a geographic area. Most of these, you know, there are online focus groups, but we continue to, especially for political races, really think you get something extra out of the in-person group. So if you're having a, an in-person focus group in a strip mall 
in suburban Detroit, you can only pull from people who are within a, you know, 15, 20, 25 minute drive from there. So you figure out what your geographic area is and you'll have, you'll call and have a survey and it feels like a survey to that person. Okay. What do you think about Trump? What do you think about Biden? Who might you vote for? Are you more Democratic, Republican, et cetera, et cetera. And if by the end of eight or 10 or 12 questions, they fit the profile you're looking for, they're undecided. They don't like Trump or, or Biden. They're undecided. Or they like both Trump and Biden a little bit. Or they're leaning toward Trump and say they might change their mind. If they fit whatever that profile is, then at the end of that survey, they are invited to a focus group. Most of them pay you know, $100, $150. You compensate the person for their time for a couple of, of hours. But even the mechanism of focus groups often uh, sort of feels like a survey as you're determining you know, which participants uh, you really want in the room. Yeah, it's super interesting. I love the uh, the focus on mixed methods, you know, the quantitative and the, the qualitative. And also nice to hear a concrete example from Michigan and dealing with roads, which I can also uh, heavily identify from my home state of Louisiana. So my last question for you has to do with governors and your work with Governor John Bell Edwards down in Louisiana. And in particular, I'm curious to hear about you know, what is the work like doing polling for a politician who's already in office and how might that differ from a campaign context? I mean, in a sense, kind of what's the point or the rationale behind keeping polling going when a politician is in office and maybe doesn't have another shot at reelection? Yeah, certainly that, that there can be a couple different pieces. In a first term, uh, even if you're not fully in campaign mode or you're not polling as frequently as you would in a campaign, in a campaign, you know, it'd be rare to go for in a governor's race, go two or three months without polling in a governor's race. You know, by the end of the campaign, uh, when you're spending money and when people are actually making up their minds, you're, you're polling every week or two. Uh, but, you know, when you're in office, maybe you would poll once or twice a year, mostly to get a sense of, you know, what is the governor's standing? How are people reacting to him or her? What are the issues, you know, that are front and center with the voters? Are those aligning with what the governor uh, is focused on. If there's not alignment, then then there's an opportunity uh, to fix that. As governor, you have the bully pulpit. You have a lot of ability to get a message out really above and beyond anybody but a president. You know, president has the ability to set an agenda. Presidential candidates have an ability to set the agenda. It's really difficult for Senate members, one of 100 Senate members, uh, one of 435 House members to set an agenda, but governors, you know, are executives and have an ability to get media attention, to literally set legislative agendas. And so you want to make sure that you are uh, staying in touch with the electorate. At that point, there's also often a component of helping to build legislative coalitions. Now, there are some governors, I'm sure, across the country who have big majorities and who can get anything they want through their legislature. There are some governors who have are facing the other party having uh, dramatic uh, majorities and maybe can't get anything through their legislature. But most governors to build legislative support, whether it's within their own party, whether it's to try to build a bipartisan coalition, if you're able to have credible polling data, that is not the only thing that I'm sure people are taking into account, but can be one component that people are taking into account to say, okay, with well, the governor, Governor John Bell Edwards wants to raise the minimum wage in Louisiana from you know, $7.25 to $10. And if you can have credible, reliable polling that says, listen, 70% of Louisianans support that, including a majority of Democrats, Republicans, and independents, that's a good talking point as you're trying to build uh, support for a legislative package. 
you know, the legislative end is certainly one part of it. And you're never really out of campaign mode uh, as a first term governor. So you're needing to be, uh, you know, much more attuned to public opinion. It doesn't mean you're changing your decisions by any means. But in terms of as a governor, if you've had some good accomplishments, but voters aren't aware of them, you got to figure out, okay, well, what do we have to do differently to get our message out? A lot of times that is, in Governor John Bell Edwards, that was something that we had to be very attentive to. He inherited a, I've forgotten the numbers, but a massive budget deficit from his predecessor, Bobby Jindal. Louisiana can't stay in, in budget deficit, so Governor Edwards had to go you know, raise some taxes here and there, had to go make some cuts here and there to get the budget back into balance. But there had been years and years where Louisiana was beset with these budget deficits, and you would have the LSU football team saying, hey, maybe we'll have to cut you know, have fewer games this year because we're in deficits and things like that. So the, the state for years and years had heard about these budget deficits. Governor Edwards gets in there, makes the tough decisions to put the state back in the black, to zero out these budget deficits, to put the state on a healthier fiscal course. But we would get in the field and survey it, and people would still think the state's still in the deficit because they're, you know, we're so used to that being the case. And again, they've got a lot of other things to do rather than look at state budgets or read every line in what's going on in the newspaper. So we had to be, you know, if everybody already knew that the state was in a surplus, we wouldn't have to have been so deliberate about it. We could have focused on something else, but there was a lot of work to be done while he was governor, including in the campaign, to make sure we connected the dots. We spoon-fed voters that information that, yes, he inherited a deficit, but now the state is in a surplus. So those are some of the examples that become important. I will say that generally when governors are in second terms, some of the air comes out of the balloon. You know, there's often a little less frequent uh, polling unless there's a crisis, unless there's something that a governor or or, or an incumbent, a lame duck incumbent, if you will, has to really get their arms around. A lot of it is more first term focused as a prelude uh, to the campaign uh, in a lot of ways. Super interesting. Yeah, we often don't hear too much. I mean, obviously, we know about the the permanent campaign, but not so much about what actually happens in office or what types of methods are used or, you know, how is technology changing the game? So really interesting to hear how campaigns are ticking here in 2022. So Zach, thanks so much for taking the time out and sharing your insights with us. Yeah, Michael, this is a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. I've just been speaking with Zach McCrary, partner and pollster at Impact Research. Be sure to check out his podcast, ProPolitics. And that's a wrap for this episode of the Social Media and Politics Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's see. I think we'll have one more episode with a top-level political strategist, maybe one or two more on the academic front, and then the year's over. Seventh annual year in review. But until then, I'm your host, Michael Bassetta, signing off from Elbow. See you next time.